Welcome to The Disappearing Mind, a unique podcast helping you find clarity and support along your dementia journey. Now, join National Dementia Trainer and Coach Don Platt for an all-new episode. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today on the podcast, I have someone who I think you're going to find very interesting And I think that some of the things that we talk about today on the podcast might be eye-openers to you or to make you think a little bit differently. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Let's go ahead and get into it. Thank you for joining us. So today on the podcast, I have Dr. Sandra Peterson. Dr. Peterson received her doctorate of nursing practice from Rush College of Nursing in Chicago, Illinois. She has successfully completed three residencies and holds a certificate as a nurse practitioner in family, geriatric, and psychiatric mental health. Dr. Peterson was recently selected as one of the top 25 nurses in Texas by the Texas Nurses Association. In 2016, she was inducted into the Fellow of the Academy of Nurse Practitioners. Dr. Peterson has a vast array of experience. She is also in clinical practice, but she serves as the director of the University of Texas at Tyler's Psychiatric Nurse Practitioner Program. She consults regularly in the assisted living industry, as well as having a practice, and she is a nurse researcher. She's done research and pursues geriatric topics in the area of investigation, including neuroplasticity, which we're going to get into today, geriatrics, artificial intelligence, and dementia-related topics. Recently, Dr. Peterson has completed a privately funded study utilizing the pararobotic seal, um, the PET seal, as a non-pharmacological intervention in symptom management of clients with dementia. Welcome, Dr. Peterson, to the podcast. Thank you. So Dr. Peterson is in practice in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex area. She sees lots of patients. She does lots of different things, not only at the university, but also in new technology with dementia. So Dr. Peterson, why don't you tell us a little bit about your practice there in the Dallas-Fort Worth area? Thank you. Yes, I currently have a house calls practice here in the Dallas area. I originally came back to Dallas to uh, semi-retire and uh, out of clinical practice and working in a brick and mortar practice, so to speak. Friends began to ask me to see their parents who were in assisted or independent living. Over the last eight to 10 years, I have acquired quite a large practice. I have several people who work with me and we exclusively serve seniors in the assisted living and independent settings. We have done some consultations in the long-term care or nursing home setting as well, but primarily the basis of our practice is seeing seniors in their homes in assisted and independent living. So you have been working in geriatrics for many years, and this is one of the topics I wanted to get into today on the podcast was, I know over the last 10 to 15 years, we have seen a lot of changes, not only in the type of patients that we're seeing, but as well as we're seeing a lot more mixed dementias, or at least recognizing and diagnosing them. But how have you seen that change over the last 10 to 15 years uh, in any kind of setting? So say senior living 
living. What kind of changes have you seen happen in your practice? That's a great question. Over the past, well, really since my involvement in senior living, which dates back to 1987, there's been an increase in the acuity of individuals who are served in the assisted living setting. And I think that as we've seen that acuity increase, we've also seen an increase in those with cognitive impairment seeking housing in that venue. You know, it's interesting as time has gone by that we're seeing people, especially I think since the pandemic particularly, and we've seen an increase in the acuity the isolation that many seniors experienced during the pandemic took a toll on not only their physical health, but also their mental health. So we're seeing a lot more individuals who are cognitively challenged. So I think that one of the things that has grown specifically in my practice is our uh, services in the memory care setting. And so more and more Assisted living providers have opened memory care secure units to meet the needs of those who are cognitively impaired, which I think I've seen in our practice particularly. That's just really within the last, I would say, three to five years, uh, the number of secure units that we serve has grown exponentially. Absolutely. And I know from my experience in senior living and meeting you, I guess somewhere around 2015, 2016, that your consultations and guidance for memory care in general was very, very helpful and operating uh, multiple memory cares can really require that we have an expert, someone to come in and talk with us. But one of the things I wanted to bring up that I've seen just working in the geriatric arena, as well as senior living for many years, I'm seeing a lot of change in the types of dementia that we're seeing, as well as since the pandemic, a lot more psychosis than I think that I've seen uh, the volume of that. But typically we hear and the stats are that of all of the dementias that the Alzheimer's type really makes up around 70% of all of the dementias. But Overall, I would say in the memory care practices that I serve, the memory care communities, which are about 35 of them currently, I'm seeing a change in some of the diagnosis. We are not 70% Alzheimer's. I'm seeing a lot more mixed dementias happening, getting diagnosed. I'm seeing a lot more MCI, a lot more chronic traumatic encephalopathy. I'm seeing a lot more vascular. Would you say that's true and what you're seeing there in Texas or any place else you consult? But also, why do you think that is? I would say definitely that's true. Um, We're seeing more mixed states, dementias. I've seen quite a bit of frontotemporal dementia, which I have to say I did not see as much in the past. And I think a lot of that can be attributed to the fact that we're getting better at diagnosing it and recognizing some of the symptoms. While Alzheimer's has been a great percentage of those that we diagnosed, we now know that co-occurring dementias happen more often than not. Very often we see someone, for instance, who has that history of hypertension, peripheral vascular disease, who may present with neurocognitive decline that looks very similar to Alzheimer's, but we have to recognize that there is a vascular component to their decline as well. And uh, especially if there's hypercholesterolemia, you know, high cholesterol can certainly 
impede blood flow to the brain and if the carotid arteries become blocked. And so we have to acknowledge that there may be other factors that go along with that. One other thing that I think has to be acknowledged, and especially in the context of the pandemic, is the fact that many people were very isolated during that time and suffered from clinical depression. We know from research that's been done in Europe that, you know, if depression occurs, that we can see also with that cognitive decline. So I think there's definitely a factor that must be included. Long COVID, you know, we're seeing the PET scans of those individuals who have suffered from what we're now calling long COVID or long haul COVID. And uh, we're seeing PET scans that look very similar to that of a progressive neurocognitive disease process. Wow, two questions out of that. I knew I was gonna have a lot of questions for you. So we're always talking to families and as I'm coaching families, I find it very important that they get an accurate diagnosis on the type of dementia that their loved one may have. And I think that that's important because a lot of the information out there can produce fear or anxiety in families when perhaps their loved one doesn't even have that type of dementia. And we know each person can exhibit changes their behaviors differently. How important would you say to our audience it is to to get a good diagnosis and how would they go about doing that? Great questions. You know, I think the earlier dementia can be diagnosed, the better. The more adept we become at diagnosing the type of dementia by looking at the person's history, by getting PET scans, your new spinal fluid and blood serum tests that are coming out. You know, I think getting an early diagnosis allows the person to plan accordingly for their long-term care needs. It also helps them to take advantage of some of the symptom control drugs that we have out. All those are not hugely effective in some people, they are in others. So getting an early diagnosis is important. And then uh, the fact that you mentioned that different diagnoses may have a differing type of impact. For instance, those with uh, vascular dementia may not progress in the same way that we see with what we know to be a progressive neurocognitive decline like Alzheimer's. Those individuals with vascular dementias may actually have quite a bit of awareness for a long time. Those with frontotemporal dementia, of course, is uh, they may be verbally impacted in their judgment and ability to stay safe may be impacted early on. Some other types like Lewy body dementia, we may see falls. And so we have to prepare to look at the safety for that person in terms of their housing, in terms of their personal environment and medications. We think about uh, the different types of medications that are available to treat differing Mm -hmm. types of behaviors or dementia. And so I think it's important to get that diagnosis early on. You can do that through a primary care who feels comfortable and working with that or through neurology. We uh, utilize in our practice a number of tools that help us with relative accuracy, help uh, ferret out which type of dementia we're dealing with. But if your primary care doesn't feel comfortable and for instance, you're seeing cognitive decline with your loved one, it's always important to have that checked out by a neurologist. Even with primary care, though, it's important to rule out organic factors like thyroid disease, nutritional deficiencies, medication interactions. Those can all cause cognitive impairment as well. And then normal pressure hydrocephaly. That's another one where we can see a difference in brain fluid pressure that can cause very similar symptoms to what we see with Alzheimer's disease. So I think 
the minute we notice a decline in cognition, you know, we will see some difference in processing speed as people get older, but typically it doesn't result in huge impairments. And so if we start seeing those forgetting of appointments, going to someplace familiar and forgetting how to get home, going out at two in the morning and ringing the neighbor's doorbell, things that are atypical for the person's behavior, then that's always a signal to us that it could be an underlying medical condition and they should be screened for dementia. Those are great points. So you had mentioned something and we talked a little bit about depression and I'm always kind of surprised when I dementia coach with families, there's something common that comes up that I want to talk about. And that is depression. Statistically, I believe it's 40% of anyone with dementia could develop depression. Much of that is treatable, or at least the symptoms can be treatable. But many of my families report that their GP is just saying, well, that's just all part of it. How important is it? And the reason I ask you this question is I've seen you treat a lot of different types of symptoms within the dementia, such as OCD, because it's a separate diagnosis. How important would you say to families that it is that this depression is treated and that they should be aware that all of the things that they see are not necessarily untreatable, even if someone has Alzheimer's disease or another type of dementia? Absolutely. Great point. I think that the treatment of depression is incredibly important. And we think about the life losses that people often have as they age, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a home of 60 years. You know, it's not surprising that anywhere between 40 to 60% of people who reside in assisted living have undiagnosed clinical depression. And so it's something we should be screening for regularly. You should insist on that as you work with your primary care. We know from the research, as I mentioned earlier, there was a huge study in Europe that was done, and they showed that those individuals who had cognitive decline could pinpoint a time when they were clinically depressed. There was isolation, the loss of interest in activities, the reticence to go out and see friends, withdrawing socially, withdrawing from loved activities. I mean, all those things are signs and symptoms of dementia. Sometimes it results in sleep disturbances, weight loss, or even weight gain. It presents very differently in everyone, but when there's just this marked sadness, we should be screening for that regularly in primary care, especially uh, with the isolation that we saw in the pandemic. We've seen this huge jump in the numbers of people who are clinically depressed. As uh, individuals take their loved ones to the primary care doctor, it's important to have them screened for depression. Ask for that if the primary care doesn't do that. It's critical, critical, especially if someone gets older and you're contemplating they're going to assisted living or they've recently lost a spouse or they've lost their mobility because of a fractured hip. Any of those things can signal an onset of clinical depression. So it's uh, important in that we note with those who have undiagnosed depression that their cognitive decline is hastened dramatically. And the study in Europe that I mentioned earlier showed that, that if these individuals were not treated that their cognition, their cognitive scores slipped dramatically in a very short period of time. So I think that diagnosis becomes super important. I think the other point to make is if someone 
has dementia that one of the characteristic neurotransmitters that is lower in individuals who have progressive neurocognitive decline is the serotonin. And serotonin has a lot to do with mood stabilization in the brain. If your serotonin level is low and you have neurocognitive decline, that hastens that decline by a significant amount if we don't treat that low serotonin level that's brought about simply by the dementia itself or from a clinical depression. Great. Well, that's really good information. And I just want to encourage people that don't accept all of the behaviors or depression or anything. Don't assume that everything isn't treatable. I mean, Dr. Peterson and I have both been in the healthcare industry for a long time, and it wasn't that long ago that there were many things that you often didn't get treated for if you had Alzheimer's or other types of dementia. And we now know that that's just not the case, that they can be treated. But let's just switch a little bit because I wanted to ask you this question. It's probably going to be twofold. So let's talk about in your practice. So what are some of the primary medications that you prescribe to your patients with different types of dementia? And what can you tell our listeners about some of those medications and their value. Okay, great. Of course, we have to preface our remarks with the fact that we still don't have a cure for progressive dementias like Alzheimer's. It's important to note that. And I think sometimes primary care can be neglectful in not explaining that because there are no cures at this point. We're hopeful. There are some things on the horizon that I think look very promising. But for now, we have uh, symptom control drugs, and these are things like Aricept and Namenda. And what they do is to act on the synapse to leave neurotransmitter or neurochemical transmitters in the synapse longer to allow people's functioning brain cells to work correctly. We know that dementias, depending on the type and, you know, in talking about Alzheimer's specifically, these result in brain cell death. We have protein waste that we believe are the key cause of these types of dementia. The brain cells become clogged. You've probably heard of plaques and tangles if you've listened to anyone speak on Alzheimer's. But these protein deposits eventually result in clumping and brain cell death. And so as a result of that, we have a limited capacity of these brain cells to produce cognitive thought. And as different areas of the brain are damaged by this progressive disorder, then we lose that ability to think. So these early intervention with these drugs like Aricept and Namenda may be helpful. Now, there are some side effects to these, and some individuals are not able to take them because of the side effects. The uh, key one that I think troubles most people is that of GI distress. So some people have diarrhea or become very, very nauseated with those medications. And most people, if they do have the side effects, they resolve in two to three weeks, but some people just cannot take them. They cannot tolerate the GI distress that they cause. But your chances, if you can use those drugs, if your loved one can take those drugs, that they're going to be most effective early on in the disease. Uh, most people start with Aricept, and there are several different types on the market that come in but the pill and patch form. Some people can take the pills, some cannot. We can try the patches and that can be more effective. The second medication that is usually paired with Aricept is an MDA receptor, and that is uh, Namenda. 
which can be given conjointly with the Aricept. There is actually a medication that combines the two that can be utilized, and it's indicated for moderate phases of the disease. Those started early on can be helpful to some individuals. Now, as we progress uh, with dementias, we see that sometimes individuals will have behaviors that are secondary to their inability to perceive the environment and respond to it correctly. Dementia has often been referred to as a group of diseases that produce fear, and it's because we see that the individual cannot correctly perceive the environment and thus can't have a correct response to it. So they often become fearful or they may, because of the memory loss that's associated with dementia, not be able to figure out what to do next. And what that does in the brain is to put us into an autonomic nervous system response. And so you see this fight or flight and this constant state of stress that the individual is experiencing. And so Sometimes we use medications like antidepressants. Uh, SSRIs are particularly good for anxiety and depression that are associated with these symptoms of dementia. Sometimes we use low doses of those. In general, in working with geriatrics, we always want to start low and go slow in raising that dose so that we do have side effects. The medication can be stopped without having repercussions for the patient. Occasionally, depending again on the type of dementia diagnosed, we might use a low dose of an antipsychotic. For those, uh, for instance, who might have Lewy body dementia, we may use a low dose of a medication like Seroquel that can be very helpful in dealing with some of the hallucinations that are classic with that particular type of dementia. Well, you've led into my next question. So let's talk to families at home who are caregiving for their loved one, who is really exhibiting anxiety, agitation, hallucinations, delusions, auditory hallucinations. One of the things that families often ask me and I tell them, they'll say, you know, my doctor started him on this or that and it didn't work. There is this need to titrate medications. And I know from you and from being in practice that not all medications work and the importance of titrating meds is continuous because dementia stages and there are times that we need to adjust medication either up or down and uh, there's not a magic formula. So can you give some hope to these families who, how long does it take and what needs to be done if, if something is tried and it really is not taking the edge off so that they can better care for their loved one? Great question. You know, I think a couple of things I would say to that. Most of these medications are not immediate fixes. The SSRIs, as an example, the antidepressants that I spoke about, typically take four to six weeks to take effect and to really see what the outcome is going to be. Antipsychotics may work a little bit more quickly, but it may take some titrating of the dose up a little bit or down if it's too much. In the case of, I think, particularly of Lewy body's disease, sometimes if the antipsychotic we choose is too high, that can actually make symptoms worse. It's finding that perfect cocktail for the person. One of the things that I like to do, I use a genetic testing panel that allows me to look metabolically at which medications may work best. And, you know, I find that very helpful in my practice, especially as I work with frail elderly individuals who 
have not only dementia, but multiple other disorders. And so if we see treatment failure after we've tried an SSRI and a low dose of an antipsychotic, or even maybe a mood stabilizer, then we will likely do the gene testing to help us determine what are next steps. So I don't think there's any one recipe that works well for all people. It somewhat depends on where the person is in their dementia journey, what type of dementia they have, what comorbidities they might have. For instance, someone who's diabetic, their blood sugar swings may affect their cognition. We would expect that. They probably have some vascular issues and most likely have a mixed states dementia, but we have to be careful what type of meds we use because many of the antipsychotics will affect blood sugar. That's just an example, but it's not a black and white process that we can just say that all meds are gonna work for all people. We're all individuals, our brains are all wired differently. And so we have to work within that uh, framework to find just the right medication for that person. Absolutely. Is this something that families living at home could ask their GP for? Absolutely. The genetic testing has really come into its own. We began piloting it in my practice when I came back to Dallas. It's been eight to 10 years ago now. And we began piloting and beta testing it. And we found that the information we get from it has been extremely helpful with those who have treatment failure. So this is absolutely something you can ask your primary care provider about. Also, I would say many uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, neurologists have moved into utilizing these sorts of tests as well. So if your primary care isn't able to do that, Many times your neurologist or a psychiatrist who's affiliated in that office may be able to help out with the testing, especially if your loved one has struggled with drug interactions, side effects, and the like, not responding well to multiple trials of medications. Right. Thank you for that advice. So let's move into the topic that you and I talk about the most, and that is neuroplasticity. What is neuroplasticity and how is it used in dementia? I love that question. And I know we've had so many great discussions about this, Dawn. Neuroplasticity essentially is the resiliency of the brain. We're able to, through challenging the brain, build extension cords, if you will, new neural pathways around damaged parts of the brain to reconnect to those old files that are there. In sharing a personal story with you, I suffered a stroke about 15 years ago. And prior to my stroke, I had met a gentleman who was an expert in neuroplasticity. And as a result of my stroke, I would not have been able to talk with you as I'm talking today nor could I walk because the stroke affected me very dramatically. Now, while the stroke itself wasn't a good thing, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me in terms of working with those who have cognitive impairment because I experienced some of that inability to recall words. I was not able to make complete sentences without hesitation. It was very frustrating. I could stare at something like, a hairbrush or a spoon all day long, and I might be able to name it, but I might not. The other thing I could not do was I wasn't able to walk without a cane or a walker. And of course, I travel a lot and uh, in both my teaching and my practice. And so it was very devastating for me. So the idea of neuroplasticity was that you could 
rebuild through challenging the brain. And this individual that I was working with told me, he said, if you will challenge your brain to learn a new language, he said, it will help you reconnect with those words that are already stored there. He said, it will bring about extension cords, if you will, around damaged parts of the brain, those damaged by the stroke, to reconnect with those file drawers that have held all of your language skills since you're very young. Now, it was interesting to experience the fact that as I conjugated the verbs in Spanish, as I worked with the language professionals to learn Spanish, my English became better and better and better. And that simply was because of that rewiring, that neuroplasticity, that idea of repeating to remember and repeating again and again and again caused that neurotransmitter flow to be reestablished to my language centers. With walking, the individual suggested that I take ballroom dancing. Now, of course, she wouldn't want to dance with me. I'm a terrible dancer, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but that left-right shift uh, across midline of the body helped reconnect the synapse across the lobes of the brain. And I found within six to eight months after that endeavor that I was able to walk without a cane again. So this really got me thinking about this whole idea, Don, of how we could use neuroplasticity with those who have cognitive decline or brain cell death slash damage from neurocognitive diseases like Alzheimer's. And so I began working in the assisted living setting with my patients to see if this indeed could be applied. If you look on Google neuroplasticity, you'll see that it's been used for many, many years with stroke patients who have, mm -hmm. of course, brain damage from that. But it hadn't really been tried a lot with those who have dementia. And lo and behold, we started working with it and it became a topic of research for me at the University of Texas. And so we found within just a few weeks that people who supposedly didn't remember how to get to the dining room or couldn't remember words or couldn't talk in some cases, that we could connect with them emotionally and through aromatherapy, through touch, different ways, and then add to that challenging the brain. And they began to, some that hadn't spoken in years, began to speak. Some, we used aromatherapy to cue for meals. We would use lemon cool diffusion and put that scent out and people knew that was the cue to come eat. And you would see people take off for the dining room. And these are supposedly people who cannot learn or who cannot regain or retain skills. And we saw just the opposite as we began applying the neuroplastic concepts to uh, those who had cognitive impairment. This is an exciting topic. Uh, one of my favorites, something that I am passionate about. But so let's just talk about that. You are a big proponent, as am I of therapeutic programming in memory care, not something that's just based on entertainment or socialization, but much more of a cycle and a structure. And you talked about that repetitiveness, even for brain health. What are some of the top things that people can do right now for their brain to improve their brain health? And then let's talk a little bit about therapeutic programming, because we both have been in the business and there are memory cares across this nation, but those that are the most impactful are those that have great programming that includes neuroplasticity, some Montessori, definitely occupational profiling. So what type of things do you recommend for both the person 
who's not living or who's just wanting to keep their brain health. And then the person who actually has been diagnosed and might even be in a memory care. I think the number one thing is exercise, Dawn. People don't need to move. And moving is part of that cycle that we need to, as far as keeping or retaining our brain health. So following an exercise regimen, I recommend walking 20 to 30 minutes a day. That's wonderful. It doesn't, it's cheap. It doesn't cost us anything. It's easy to do. You can do it anywhere. So I would say that exercising is number one. Also to retain brain health is the other thing that's super important is nutritional status and hydration. Most of us, after we get older, our thirst response changes. We don't drink enough water. And so without that, memory will begin to decline if you stay in a constant state of dehydration. So staying well hydrated, minimum of 32 ounces, preferably closer to 64 ounces a day, depending on your size and your activity level. Those are good amounts uh, to make sure that you're getting enough water. Uh, many people drink a steady diet of coffee and teas, which are uh, diuretic. It's okay to have those things, but we have to balance that with water. Minimizing carbohydrate intake is the other thing. I've read with interest that around 1900 people took in on average two pounds of sugar a year, and those were affluent people. Those uh, We now take in about uh, 80 to 120 pounds a year of sugar. Wow. Um, which is unbelievable. So staying away from those Coca-Colas and things of that sort, normalizing your weight, those are things that you can do that positively impact the brain. Uh, we know that a great part of thought has to do with neurochemicals, and one of those is insulin. So when we suffer insulin resistance in our bodies through overdoing the carbs over a lifetime, we can see cognitive decline hastened because of that. So if you can avoid highly processed foods, stay hydrated, exercise, and challenge your brain. One of the things sometimes we don't do is to challenge our brains. We may come home from work and sit in front of the television for hours at a time, and it doesn't really challenge the brain to continue learning. So staying social, uh, learning new skills, challenging your brain throughout your lifetime are good ways to ensure that your brain keeps working. I always have to think of my grandmother who used to say, if you don't use it, you lose it. And it's very true with our brains. In order to keep those neural pathways healthy, we have to keep our brains challenged. We have to keep learning and becoming engaged in life and Staying social with others is super important. The best way you can keep your brain functioning is to talk to other people and to socialize because that back and forth of conversation requires a firing of neurotransmitters. We have to be able to prepare to answer someone. We have to listen to what they're saying to us in order to respond. So staying social is super important as well. One of the things I remember a story that you had told me, I believe that at the time of your stroke, you were actually a professor, right? At the University of Texas at Tyler. That job was in jeopardy. And the other thing, in addition to learning Spanish and dancing, you had talked about the importance of music and specifically learning a musical instrument. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
That's a great point. Um, I was very fortunate to grow up with a grandmother who was a piano teacher. It was just understood that if you lived with her, you would learn to play the piano. And so I was very fortunate to have that gift early in my life and was able to return to that after I had my stroke. Music is super important. When you think about the brain, it's really divided into two lobes. There's a left lobe that we often associate with language. And there's a right lobe that's associated with things that are rhythmic, like music. To strengthen that neural pathway, that right lobe of the brain, music is wonderful. It's a way we can connect to people, even those who have fairly severe dementia. While they may not be able to verbally communicate with us, they can often sing. And that's because those rhythmic memories if you will, are stored in the right side of the brain. So while we may not be able to communicate with them verbally, we can still connect through uh, rhythmic things like music. So music becomes an important part of connecting with someone. So if we can use that to stimulate movement, to stimulate communication with that person, it's a wonderful way to connect. And yes, it was very helpful to me and continues to be helpful to me. Music is very therapeutic in terms of cognitive health. I think, you know, we see it used a lot with our folks in our memory care settings where we may connect through music, like whether it's for learning or reminiscence to think of old tunes that they might recognize, or whether it's to sing a hymn with them or to exercise to music. Those are ways that we can make connections across different parts of the brain. And so music is a very vital and important part of that. If individuals are looking for placement, I think that's one of the things we look for is how do they utilize music in the setting? Because it's tremendously important, especially as people are more advanced. And the reality is we don't typically see individuals coming to memory care and assisted living until they're at a moderate stage of the disease. And so that's a wonderful way of connecting is through use of music and rhythm. You had briefly talked about it in your conversation with the neurologist that you utilized or that you knew about connecting new memories to old memories. In that, I'd like you to define that, but what's cognitive reserve and why is that so important? Cognitive reserve is such an interesting concept. I think it really speaks to a person's cognitive resilience and how they perform tasks and how well they can respond to some activities. And as I mentioned earlier, everybody's brain is wired a little bit differently, but we have to find what I call connection points to help them get into that cognitive reserve and to help them regain or retain skills. So cognitive reserve really refers to that cognitive resilience and that person's ability to connect. And then on the side of those helping that person, figuring out how to tap into that cognitive reserve and to motivate that person. I think it's important to realize that we don't pay attention to boring things. So it speaks to getting to know that person and what motivates them. What are they passionate about and how do we connect to that and thus tap into their cognitive reserve to help them improve and to regain skills. 
I think that's so important for families to know, and certainly that's something that I value when I'm working on programming or working with families. But let's switch things up a little bit more. You are a national coordinator for the PARO Robotic SEAL, and you use AI and different techniques in your practice. You've even completed a study. So what is the PARO SEAL, and how have you used it? And tell us about your study. Okay, I can do that. The part of robotic seal is actually a replica, if you will, of a baby heart seal that is a robot. And it's really a funny story of how I became involved in utilizing AI. I belong to a tech group here in Dallas that looks at different medical devices and how they can be used to improve patient care. And I've always been an advocate of non-pharmacological interventions, redirection, use of music, whatever it is, rather than giving yet another pill for behaviors. Initially, when I thought about going to see this particular presentation, I really was kind of on the fence about it because, you know, I thought, well, I don't know if a robot would be that useful for me in my practice. And I don't I'm just not sure about it, but it was at a restaurant I really, really liked. And so I decided <laughs> I, would, I would attend the discussion. And lo and behold, I became enamored with the Paro seal. The seal is actually a robot that weighs about six pounds. It was invented by a gentleman by the name of Takanori Shibata. He's the head of what is the equivalent in Japan of our tech here in the United States. Just a brilliant, brilliant man. And he had built many robots over the course of his career for all kinds of things. His factory where he makes these robotic seals is actually located next to the Lexus factory in Japan. And so he had built industrial robots. But in the case of the, for the Paro, he in 1993 decided he wanted to build a robot that simply brought joy to people. He had a real heart for seniors and saw in his home country those who were very lonely, maybe didn't have family, and he wanted to build a robot that could help those individuals. And so he set about trying different ones. He tried cats and dogs that failed because we have very clear expectations of what cats and dogs should act like. And while he's very good at robotics, could not reproduce that. So he decided to look for an animal that people generally were unfamiliar with and decided on the harp seal. So he visited Canada where the harp seals live and began studying them. He camped on an ice flat and watched the seals and drew and decided how he might make a robot that actually looked like one of the baby harp seals. Over time, he developed the pattern for it. He put in actuators so that the seal could actually move its head, blink its eyes. It has sensors from the tip of its nose to the tip of its tail. It moves its flippers. It weighs about six pounds. It looks like a stuffed toy unless you interact with it, but it is anything but a stuffed toy. The inside of it is a computer that self-programs. And what is so unique about the heart seal model and the PARO robot is that it is able to assess human behavior and respond to it. It's actually a social commit robot is what it's termed. And so it's programmed specifically to interact with humans and to bring about engagement with humans. 
I began working with Dr. Shibata on this thought that perhaps we could utilize this as a way to connect with those who had cognitive impairment and maybe a non-pharmacological way to bring about the flow of neurotransmitters that uh, would stabilize moods or treat depression without giving another pill. I was fortunate to receive funding from Baylor Healthcare System to, to perform a study in five different assisted livings to utilize the PARA robot. And the individuals who were involved in the study were treated uh, 20 minutes, three times a week with interaction with the PARO. And when our control group received the usual activities and we had some dramatic findings from it, it was quite interesting to see the response of the individuals to the SEALs. Of course, there's always that novelty of seeing something new, but it was interesting to watch residents as they begin to interact with the SEAL and, and to, to talk to the SEAL. And then as the weeks went by to see them interact with others and talk to their neighbor about the SEAL. We did uh, treatment groups of five to seven individuals uh, seated around a, a round table and the SEAL was placed in the middle and we asked them to help us take care of the SEAL. We put out uh, necklaces and scarves so they could dress the SEAL. There was a small brush if they wanted to brush the SEAL. There was a baby bottle that looked like it was going into the SEAL. It really didn't, but it was one of those that looked like, as you turn it up, it looks like the volume is going down in the, the bottle. And so some fed the SEAL. And so they interacted and talked about the SEAL. And what we excitedly found as a result of those studies is that the treatment groups had about a third decline or decrease in the amount of PRN or as needed medications for behaviors. The pain medication use declined and sleep medication use declined and the number of behaviors overall declined. So lots of positive things that we saw out of this wonderful AI intervention that said to us that, hey, this is a way we can do some very positive things. We also noticed a decrease in pulse rate, a decrease in blood pressure. So there were lots of other benefits that we weren't particularly studying, but were noticed anecdotally during the course of the study. So I think there's a lot to be said for AI. As I said, I wasn't initially a big proponent of that, but it has turned out to be an area of research and interest that's ongoing for me. Well, I will tell you that my interactions with you and the Paro Seal were amazing. I did have the opportunity to work with the Paro Seal for I probably, I don't know, four, five years, something like that. And uh, in that time, I saw a lot of great interactions and got to be part of a team that put together a matrix and outcome base for it. But I saw several things. Number one, I saw a decrease in behaviors for those people who would exhibit behaviors from time to time. I saw an increase in socialization and sharing of the seal. I also saw something pretty miraculous and I saw increased verbalization. So we actually had a concert pianist who had not verbally spoken in over a year. And she had one-on-one -on -one sessions three to four times a week with the seal. And she began to speak to the seal and she began to pet it and goo-goo and, and awe over it. And she began to respond to others as well. And that was pretty miraculous. I can't say that I have seen that 
in anything other than music, spiritual music response, but certainly nothing like that. And uh, what an experience. It was my real first experience with AI and it's used therapeutically in dementia. And so thank you for that, Dr. Peterson, exposing me to that and broadening my horizon to think more positively. So I hope today that something that we've talked about on this podcast has really sparked you to think differently or seek more information. But Dr. Peterson, before I close the podcast, I know that probably a lot of my listeners would like to know a little bit more about you or your practice. Is there a way or a website or email address that if they live in Texas or in your area that they might be able to access you? Yes, uh, we actually have a website. It's on Practice Fusion. If listeners are familiar with that, or you can email us directly at CareTrack, that's C-A-R-E-T-R-A-C-K-L-L-C at gmail.com. And that's CareTrack, LLC at gmail.com. And you can uh, email and request information. And we're happy to get back to listeners if they live in the area. Great. And we will have the information on our resource page. Dr. Peterson, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm always inspired when I talk to you. And I just hope that our listeners are inspired too to look and search for more. To everyone listening today, thank you for joining the podcast. I hope that you can find some joy on your journey. And until next time, make it a memorable day. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the Disappearing Mind podcast. We hope it's helped you find clarity and support along your journey. Be sure to subscribe to never miss an episode, visit our website to suggest future topics, and share the podcast with friends and family.